0: Who be seated, unless you're feeling sleepy, maybe then you stand up for a few more minutes. So glad to be with you here this morning as we return to our sermon series called Vital Signs, where we're thinking about what it means to be spiritually healthy in an age that often focuses only and excessively on physical healthiness. Yet there's more to life than just the well-being of our bodies. This is certainly something the Bible talks about a lot. It says, for example, that people who are spiritually healthy uh, meet God regularly in His Word. They pray together. They're hospitable. They're grateful. We're committed to serving others in our churches, yes, but also in our neighborhoods and in our homes with the people that we share life with. We are open and receptive to the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. These are all aspects of spiritual vitality. And today we're going to add to that list as we consider being Content. Contentment, regardless of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. This is a hallmark of spiritual health and vitality that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4, which Tom just read for us. Let me pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in Philippians 4, you read some extraordinary words. St. Paul wrote those words. Let me read some again for you. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need, no matter what the situation. I think it's fair to say over the past few years, we've been in a situation. There was a global pandemic. There have been disturbing and painful levels of cultural and political polarization We see that playing out all over the place. It's probably going to start again in the next year. And even now, our nation is facing a momentous and ominous decision about how to manage its debt. There are numbers that are so big we can hardly fathom fathom them. But it matters. It matters greatly. And then there are difficult situations in our personal lives, sicknesses, and the cures are limited. Some of you know that very well. It's hard. It's very hard. And I'm not just talking about physical sickness. There's also emotional sickness and psychological sickness. There are anxiety disorders. There are eating disorders. There are attachment disorders and all the pain and agony that comes in their wake. There are frayed relationships in our lives, often with the people that we're supposed to be closest to. There are business pressures, the endless tyranny of the urgent. What in the world would it mean to be content in these sorts of situations? Is it even appropriate to speak of contentment? In these kind of situations. Now at this point, right here from the start, I want to clarify that being content in a situation does not mean being content with a situation. Being content in a situation is not the same thing as being content with a situation. So I'm not talking about being apathetic or complacent. Rather, I'm talking about a positive trait, a tranquility, a serenity, even a joy that possesses you and that holds you no matter what Circumstances you find yourself in. In other words, there is a contentment that I can experience, that you can experience, even while being completely candid about the fact that the situation is utterly awful and wretched. St. Paul does that. I can do that. You can do that. So, how does that happen? What I want to do this morning, and I got to warn you, there's going to be some tough images and stories from church history I'm going to be sharing. So, brace yourselves a little bit. I'm going to reflect. On three different ways of pursuing contentment. And these three ways are represented by three different people who were all alive in the same city at about the same time. The city was Rome, ancient Rome. And the time was about 60 A.D. So a couple thousand years ago. The first person representing a first way to finding contentment is a guy called Nero. Anybody ever heard of Nero? For Nero, the secret to contentment was to gratify desire. We all want stuff. We like to get stuff. And along these lines, Nero decided that the pathway to contentment was, i got to make sure I get everything that I want and more. Gratified desire. All Nero ever wanted was more. He wanted more power, for example. So when the emperor died, he decided to seize that power. just so happened that the emperor was his uncle, Claudius. Note that, uncle. And Nero's mom, a lady called Agrippina, was married to Claudius. She was his fourth wife and claudius is said to have died by eating a mushroom that was poisoned by his fourth wife fourth wife agrippina divorce wasn't an option but murder was After Claudius died, Nero made a deal with some of the soldiers, an elite group. They were called the Praetorian Guard. Uh, He said, will you help me get onto the throne? They decided to back him in his quest to the throne. And so Nero became the new emperor of Rome, the richest and most powerful man in the known world. He ruled over a fifth of the world's population, and the army that dominated the earth was at his disposal. But that wasn't enough. He wanted even more fame which is why he declared himself an actor and a poet and a musician and a charioteer. He went to Greece. He bribed his way into the Olympics, and he won every single event that he entered. Can you imagine that? Case in point, he competed in a chariot race in the Circus Maximus. If you've ever seen Ben-Hur, the movie, you'll have an idea of what that would have looked like. He actually fell out of his chariot and had to quit. Nevertheless, he was still declared the winner of that race. They said if he had not fallen out, he would have won. He enjoyed his newfangled fame so much that while he was in Greece, he kept entering contests, and he eventually won, I kid you not, 1,808 prizes, all first place. He was the emperor, after all. That was good, but Nero wanted more. He wanted more pleasure. The tales of his sexual partners and experiences would probably make Hugh Hefner blush. I'll let you read about that on your own after church today. Unfortunately for Nero, more was never enough. He was really good at getting more, but it was never enough. His relationships were train wrecks. He divorced his first wife. She was called Octavia, and then he had her exiled. But the people didn't like having her exiled, so he brought her back, and he had to accuse her of infidelity and then execute her. In the year 59, he felt like his mom, Agrippina, who helped him get to the throne, he felt like she was cramping his style, so he arranged for mom to take a little boat ride where the boat would sink and mom would drown. But unfortunately, it didn't work out, so he had to send some of his lackeys to her apartments to stab her to death. When Nero considered members of his nobility untrustworthy, he would send them a message. The message was very simple. Three words. It said, open your veins. In other words, I want you to commit suicide so that I don't have to waste the time to have you executed. Unsurprisingly, members of his nobility directed all email from the emperor into their spam boxes after that. They did not want to hear from the emperor. Nero's desire for more cost him lots and lots of money. He had to raise taxes, which, as a knock-on effect, devalued the currency. Nobody ever likes it when that happens. He finally got his comeuppance. Because of those financial problems, he found himself the most hated man in the Roman Empire. And that hatred culminated on June 8th of the year 69, when the Roman Senate declared Nero an enemy of the people. The imperial guard turned against him. He found himself friendless, hopeless, and meaningless. And on June 9th, Nero opened his veins. That's the way of more. Now when Nero was coming along as a young man, he had a tutor. And this guy was called Seneca. Anybody ever heard of Seneca? Seneca followed a second path to commitment. And he wrote a lot about it. He was a stoic. A philosopher of Stoicism, you may have heard that word. Sometimes people think everyone in Britain is Stoic. Step off or left. Stoicism means that Seneca taught that trying to gratify all your desires is a fool's errand because it makes you depend on circumstances that you cannot control. And so for the Stoic, the wise path to contentment is to eliminate or repress desire. That's how you become content. You suppress or eliminate, repress your desire. Let me put it this way. When Stoics, with Stoics, what counted was not the ability to conquer cities uh, or raise armies or conquer markets. Instead, what mattered was the ability to conquer your inner spirit, your appetites, your desires, your emotions. The great virtue for Stoics was this Greek word called autarkes, autarkes. Aldo is the Greek word for self. We get the word autobiography from this word, for example. And the term autarkes means self-rule or self-mastery. And so Stoics taught that the road to contentment lies not in acquiring more, that's what Nero did, but rather in training yourself to want less. We could all use some help with that, I expect. And so Seneca taught, and I quote, it is not the person who has too little that is poor, but the one who hankers after more. In Stoicism, the great goal, and there is something noble about this, the great goal is peace of mind. And since suffering in our lives is a disturbance of mind, the primary task of a contented life is to use your reason to distinguish between what you can control and what you cannot control, and then to focus only on what you can control. And so Seneca wrote, for example, that anger, if it's not restrained, is frequently more hurtful than the injury which provokes that anger. You can't always control being injured, that's just going to happen to you, but you can control how you respond to that. It's very easy to appreciate, as I'm sure you are right now, that stoicism is pretty difficult to live out. Trying to hold down our desires and our passions and emotions is kind of like trying to hold a beach ball under the water. It just keep, they just keep wanting to pop back out again and again. And that was true for Seneca. He had a hard time living out what he taught. After his pupil, his number one pupil, Nero, became emperor, uh, Seneca became his advisor. And Nero made Seneca the first professional speech writer, a.k.a. spin doctor, in the history of the world. So after Nero killed his mom, for example, Seneca, that virtuous stoic, wrote the speech that Nero gave to the Senate, arguing that his mom wasn't actually murdered by her son, but that she committed suicide after getting caught trying to displace him from the throne. And that speech worked. The Senate lapped up that Kool-Aid. They lauded and they cheered Nero, and that made Nero very happy, and so he took care of his friend Seneca. He made him fabulously wealthy. Seneca had properties and estates in Egypt and in Spain. He even had a place in southern Italy, and I and, and one time and I kid you not, this is wild he actually bought 500 matching citrus wood tables with ivory legs, real ivory legs. That's some serious bling. Alas, Nero and Seneca experienced their own relational friction by that course. By that point, of course, Seneca knew what happened when you became Nero's ex-friend. But it wasn't actually that perhaps as bad news for Seneca as it might have been because he was a Stoic and in Stoicism um, human life isn't really sacred. There's nothing transcendent about human life. The goal of life is just to avoid suffering which means that self-destruction or suicide, if it minimizes suffering, isn't really a big deal. In fact, taking your own life is the ultimate act of self-mastery. Life was not a gift from God to be stewarded. It was about avoiding suffering. Seneca sums this up when he writes. This is one of the most uh, uh, jarring things that he ever wrote. He says, you ask, what is the path to freedom? And I tell you, any vein in your body. How about that? And so one day in AD 65, Nero sent an email to his old friend and advisor, Seneca, and you want to guess what that letter said? Open your veins. And Seneca obeyed. Seneca, who had written, freedom from care only cost one scalpel prick. He wrote those words too. And now he was free from care, unless, of course, the Stoics were wrong. What if life's not without meaning? What if the avoidance of suffering is not the highest purpose? What if self-sufficiency is not our highest calling? What if death is not the end? In those very same years as Nero and Seneca, there was this other guy who was also in Rome. And this guy shows us a third approach to contentment. In all likelihood, Nero had never even met or heard of this guy, though it is quite probable, the historians say, that Nero issued the order that led to this guy's death. It's also quite likely that Seneca had never heard of this guy, even though the man that I'm talking about had surely read Seneca. The guy in question, of course, is Paul. Paul did not live in a palace. He did not win the Olympics. He did not own estates in Spain filled with ivory-legged tables. He did not tutor princes. He did not write speeches for Caesar, but he did write letters, and one of those letters is known to us as the book of Philippians. And in this letter that Paul wrote while he was in Rome, we know this because it says, Paul, Paul writing, all God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household, as in Rome. Paul was not propped up by soldiers in the Praetorian or Imperial Guard. He was imprisoned by them, and yet the strangest thing happened. Listen to what he writes in Philippians 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I want you to know Al, I want you to know Laura, I want you to know Mr. Rhett. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole guard and to everyone else that I am actually in chains here for Jesus Christ. The imperial guard served Nero, and he drove them crazy. The guard imprisoned St. Paul, and he captured their hearts. And then at the very end of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he lays out one of his main reasons for writing. He wanted to thank them for some sort of gift that they had sent him. And as he's thanking them, he makes that remarkable statement that I read to you right at the beginning. Let me read that again. Paul says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly. In prison, he is saying that. I am rejoicing in the Lord greatly. This is a guy in prison and in chains. And I am rejoicing for your concern for me, but I want you to know I'm not writing about being in need because I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstances I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through the one who strengthens me." Here's something worth noting. In those astounding, remarkable words, Paul happens to use that term that the Stoics love, that term that I mentioned earlier, autarkes, that term that refers to self-mastery, to mastery of oneself and one's circumstances. This is the only time Paul uses that word in the whole New Testament. I have learned to be content. There's the word. And notice how Paul puts that. I really want you to notice this. Contentment is something he learned. Paul's contentment is an acquired skill. It comes from practice and cultivation. Let that sink in. In case you didn't notice, that flies in the face of conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom which ceaselessly day in and day out, hour in and hour out, teaches us that when you're not content, you know this because we're bombarded by it, you can get contentment. It's only one purchase away. Use me, drive me, wear me, eat me, flaunt me, put me in your hair, and you will be content. If you just get more, one day it'll be enough. But the fact is, nobody has ever moored their way to enough. And some of you are trying to do that right now, and it's time to stop because there's a better way. Against all of that, Paul introduces a different approach to contentment. And this is a path that works whether he's poor, and he was often poor, but also if he has too much and lives in abundance. And by the way, sometimes living in abundance can misshape us more than being poor. Like those Stoics like Seneca who may have just been a few blocks away from Paul. Paul says, I too have acquired the power over time to have an independent spirit which is able to withstand the ups and downs of life. I have learned that secret. Is there anybody in this room who does not want to know that secret? To withstand the ups and downs of life. And so now what we all want to know is, well, what is Paul's secret? This is where Paul parts company radically with Nero. And with the obviously foolish people, and I've been on that list, who spend their little lives craving and craving after more money and more power and more fame. We know about that. Paul also parts company with Seneca's stoicism, with its fixation on becoming self-sufficient, self-directed, self-protected. Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content, and it's from the one who strengthens me. That one is Jesus Christ, of course. And it is through Paul's union with Christ that he is continually strengthened, and there is a grand paradox here. Let me explain it. Paul's unconquerable independence derives from complete dependence on another. Paul's apparent self-sufficiency comes from his union with Christ, the one who alone is all-sufficient. And so, Paul's contented life is not about mastery over suffering or escaping from pain, not at all. His contented life is, is about being part of the triumph of love in this world. Paul, that clever little guy that he was, he has not renounced his desires and his longings. He has redirected them. He has refocused them. They have been transformed. And as a result, his desires, and here's the key thing, they are larger and deeper and hungrier and vaster than ever. Because Christianity, unlike Stoicism, is not about killing off desire. It's not about self-denial for its own sake, though there are people who have taught that over the years. They are wrong. To the contrary, with Jesus Christ, death to self, and that's something we're all supposed to be taking part in, death to self comes only so that another self can be born, a self that is more noble, that is glorious beyond my wildest dreams, a self that is being readied for eternal flourishing so wonderful that it can only be hinted at in pictures in songs and poems and images like streets of gold. So this vital sign of contentment is not a stoic lesson. The lesson is not don't expect too much, repress your emotions, ramp down your desires, lower your expectations. To the contrary, the message is this, don't be too easily pleased. Remember that the reason that you have an infinite desire is because you were made by a God who has an infinite capacity to love and to give. And so don't settle for anything less than that. And that's why Christian contentment is not the same thing as apathy or complacency. And that's really important for us to remember because we know that we live in a world that is not as it ought to be. We know that. And we know that we are not as we ought to be. We know that. Everybody in this room knows that in some ways they are screwed up. We're not the husbands we should meant to be. We're not the parents we're meant to be. We're not the friends we're meant to be. We're not part of this church the way we're meant to be. We're not the neighbors we're meant to be. We know that. And that is why it is a wonderful thing that we are invited to partner with Jesus Christ in bringing his transformative love into a sick and suffering and broken and fearful and uncertain world. That's what this church is all about. That's what it's all about. So I want you to find hope in God's presence right here and right now. But I also want you to find hope in the promise of life beyond the grave. And in that hope, I want you to experience contentment. I want you to be deeply content with the people in your lives. Not because it's okay that they are mediocre, slapdash versions of themselves. They are, and so are we. We're all like that. Be content with them because God made them, God loves them, and God is at work in them. Every one of them. And be content with what you have. This is a tough one, especially in places of affluence like Polly's Island. Be content with what you have, your possessions and your clothes. Be content with that because what really matters is clothing yourself in compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and love. Those things never wear out. They never go out of style. You know that. And be content in your work because if in Jesus' name and according to the way of Jesus, you give somebody a cup of water or you send an email, or you make a sale, or you teach a child, or you fix a car, or you lead a meeting, or you volunteer, if you do that in Jesus' name, and you do it the way of Jesus, then great is your reward in heaven. And that's not me saying that. That's Jesus who says that. So don't waste your life begging for more stuff. Don't waste it on money and power climbing. But don't be too easily pleased either. Be content in God through Christ. Pursue that form of spiritual health. Seek not after more, but seek instead after the God of more than enough. And let Him make you contented. And Lord, make me contented. I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, the living God. Amen.